0: Welcome to Everyone a Changemaker, where we interview the world's leading social entrepreneurs
1: on their journey towards creating social impact and systemic change. Tune in and discover innovative solutions for the most pressing
0: challenges that we face today. Brought to you by Ashoka Innovators for the public. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new episode of Everyone a Changemaker. Today, we're in conversation with Chris, who is the co-founder and still runs the NGO MEDA. Chris works in employability education and helps young adults of India today get rewarding careers that they deserve. Chris, thank you so much for being with us here today.
1: Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Could you give our audience a short introduction to MEDA and your work in MEDA?
1: Yes. So as you mentioned, Meda works with young people, typically between the ages of 17 and 24, while they're still taking part of some formal education. And we provide career counseling, mentorship, and placement support so that they can start careers of their choice, whether it's self-employment, wage employment, starting a freelance, you know, gig of their own, really trying to support them in their kind of journey and what they're interested in. And we work primarily in Uttar Pradesh, Bihar and Haryana and have been working in this geography for the last 12 years. And we work directly with students, meaning that, you know, we have a team of people who are counseling and building skills and mentoring these young people day in and day out on campuses across this geography. And we also work very closely with the government to try to bring some of this philosophy and approach into the public sector education system, because we exclusively work in government and government-aided educational institutions. So that's our quote unquote path to scale or how we see us, you know, kind of growing in the future is working closer and closer with faculty members, employability skills instructors, principals that are part of the government system to build their capacity and bring some of the 21st century skills and experiential learning that we do with students into the education system.
0: So Chris, when you talk about capacity building and 21st century skills, could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean?
1: So we primarily focus on what we call, you know, kind of the four C's, communication, creativity, critical thinking, and collaboration of 21st century skills. There's others as well. And we do some work around digital skills and digital competency. But for us, it's really about kind of building those transferable skills that you can apply to any career of your choice. You know, it's not about training a young person to go into banking specifically or go into hospitality or go into retail, but really how do you have those skills that are going to be required, not only for the jobs of today, but for the jobs of the future that we can't even predict, you know, what are those industries going to be and what might they look like? And I think we know from working for however long we have, and just in general in history and where we see obviously the future going, everyone is going to need those kind of marketable skills, the ability to interact with other people, the ability to empathize with others, the ability to communicate ideas that they may have and be able to articulate them effectively. Doesn't matter what language that may be in, but being able to communicate effectively, being able to work with other people and obviously work with people that have more diverse backgrounds that are coming from different places as economies become more and more national and global than they ever were, people are going to have to really figure out how do they work with other people and obviously in today's world, doing it online as well as offline. So that's why we kind of focus on these four C's because we believe that they're relevant to any kind of career that you may pursue whether, like I said, it's doing something on your own, starting your own business, or, you know, working in the corporate kind of world, corporate environment, even working in things like research and academia, you know, requires so much collaboration, so much critical thinking, so much ability to kind of communicate your ideas to the world. So yeah, that's what we mean by, by that. And and experiential, you know, we we have always felt, and I, I think it's pretty simple and not rocket science at all, that to build those skills you have to learn them on on the job, or you have to learn them through experience, right? You know, you can't really teach those kind of skills in a classroom. You can't teach those kind of skills through a lecture-based model or through a textbook. So experiential is really just the basic pedagogy that we have always followed of as much as you can put young people in those situations where they have to communicate where they have to collaborate where they have to think critically whether that's in a classroom environment where you kind of create those environments or it's on the job or you know it's in a workplace experience or it's doing some kind of internship or starting something on your own i think for us it's all about how do you learn this through real life as opposed to the fake kind of life that we have, you know, while we're still in an ITI or a polytechnic or a degree college. And those are, you know, kind of the levels of the education system we work in.
0: Percy with the main right on the main, when you said people that lack these skills because they're not skills that can be taught the way we teach, you know, math and science and engineering. So how does MERA go about creating these experiential situations so people can learn these skills?
1: Yeah, so I think for us, it starts with some kind of campus-based or classroom-based interaction with students, where we typically get some kind of time in the timetable and we get some kind of space on the campus to interact with students. But everything that our facilitators do, and our facilitators are called student relationship managers, is based on some kind of activity. So they'll have a lesson plan, but that lesson plan is kind of an outline or almost like a script of what could be done today. So one example, you know, that we've had for since the very beginning is this paper bridge activity where, you know, you get newspaper, you get some tape and you have to build a bridge and ball has to fit underneath it. And a bunch of books have to sit on top of it, right? It's a typical kind of leadership exercise. So that's just one example, but everything is done through that. So even if we just get, let's say an hour a day with a group of 25 students, everything will be activity based and the facilitator will come in with that plan in mind and they'll have to adapt to what the students maybe are up for and where, what level they're at and, you know, how it can kind of be done. And then everything is included with some kind of reflection session, right? You know, of what did we do? What did we learn from this and how will we apply it in the future? The what now, what, so what, essentially of the session. After that kind of classroom based experience, and again, we do the best we can to make it interactive. A lot of times we have external people come and interact with students to do, for example, a mock interview or to review their CVs or to do a career talk. And so we try to make that as engaging as possible and as experiential as possible. But from there, for us, it's really about getting some real life experience. So, as I mentioned, you know, we have a big focus on internships on apprenticeships on gig work and going out and actually experiencing it and doing it so that's part of our programming and part of our work and then we also have a very big focus on our alumni community we call it the medhavi community they've actually recently set up their own society their own entity that is owned and kind of managed and governed by alumni themselves, where there are constantly activities kind of going on outside of the classroom. They may be doing social work in their community. They may be starting a small business and trying to market to one another. We do learning journeys where they travel to different parts of the country, actually, and experience what it's like to go to the mountains and have different kinds of food and different kinds of people and different kinds of languages and have those kind of experiences. So some of it is very career focused or professional, right? You know, getting an internship, getting an apprenticeship, doing that kind of going to work day in and day out. And some of it is much more life experience, you know, that goes kind of really beyond the career place of meeting new people, having different experiences, having those kind of transformational periods, you know, that might influence What you want to do with your future what you want to do with your life and trying to create those as much as possible so yeah that's how we as best we can kind of create that for our students and our medavi
0: and chris you mentioned that you a lot of this work is done in the public education system with polytechnics and schools what's your experience been working with the state administration and bureaucracy
1: yeah our experience i think in general has been quite positive They, I think, are also very focused on improving the quality of education these days, right? 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a lot of it was about access and making sure that every young person, whether they're in a small village or in an urban area, can get access to education. The last 10 years, 15 years has really been about improving the quality of that education. And that's obviously continuing now with NEP and other policies that have come in. So I think we have been fortunate to kind of time things right, where we've sort of ridden that wave where a lot of senior bureaucrats are trying to figure out ways to improve the quality of the education that they're providing. And obviously they have their own constraints within that system, right? You know, so many faculty members and they have to be hired in a certain way. They have to be trained in a certain way. They have to be deputed in a certain way. So working with organizations like us and many others, there's so many nonprofits that are engaged with the public sector education system at different levels. I think it's been a pretty symbiotic relationship in that they're looking for people to help them either build capacity of their existing resources or in some cases do it themselves, you know, more on kind of an outsourced sort of model. And for us, we're obviously looking to work with that segment of young people because we believe they're the ones that are not really getting the same kind of opportunities and getting that same kind of exposure that young people who are going to private, high cost educational institutions are. And ultimately, like I said, you know, we have our own kind of constraints and limits and we will always have those constraints as a nonprofit. You know, we can't have a student relationship manager at every college and polytechnic and ITI across the country. It's not really financially feasible and all of that. So it works well that if we can kind of collaborate with the system and bring some of those ideas and those maybe fresh thinking that they're looking for, then we both kind of benefit. So of course it's not without its own challenges and we come from different worlds a lot of times and we have different perspectives on things and we work in very different ways. So those challenges are very real, but I think at a, at a very high level We've kind of have the same goals and we each have our own constraints that we can help each other kind of break down. For us, it's scale. And for them, it may be innovative pedagogy or a different way of doing things or getting outside of the bureaucratic kind of systems and structures that they sort of have to work within. And, and we're able to kind of circumvent that in some ways or bring some, you know, something new into the picture. And they obviously help us think about how do we bring what we're doing to a larger number of of young people.
0: And Chris, do you have any advice for members of our audience that maybe want to engage with the government in kind of furthering their own social sector aspirations?
1: Yeah, I would say just start the dialogue. There's no real harm. I think, obviously, as long as you're somewhat prepared to who you're meeting and what they may be interested in and you know, what you may have to offer them. I mean, I wouldn't just show up with a complete blank slate, but I think there's no harm in having these conversations with even senior level bureaucrats pretty early on to just explain to them that what you do and why you're passionate about it and why you think it may make a change in young people's lives and and to hear from them, where are they coming from? What What are their focus areas right now? What is their priorities? What are their constraints? What are they looking for? I think the sooner that you can start having that conversation, the better, right? Because ultimately it does take time to figure out where are the synergies and how can they work and where are the challenges. So I would just say, start that conversation, you know, at a local level where you may be working, go meet a director, go meet a joint secretary, go meet a principal secretary and, you know, start having that conversation about what you do and and why you feel like it may have some value to them. and and what that value may be. And, And like I said, kind of, I think, understanding their perspective as well, sooner the better.
0: And Chris, what is your opinion on the work that's being done in the education space by the social sector today? Do you think we're in a place where it's saturated, or do you think there are some areas that require a lot of work that are not being addressed?
1: I think there's still a lot of areas that are not being addressed. I think a lot of work has been done maybe at the primary level, mostly around kind of literacy and numeracy and I think there's a lot of scope to expand that more into the life skills space and soft skills and 21st century skills space, which I think organizations are doing. I'm not saying that they're not, but I think there's more scope there. We've seen at the senior secondary kind of space, you know, 11th and 12th, there's actually not that much kind of going on or not a lot of organizations in sort of like focus there. So I think that there's still a lot of kind of work to be done there. I guess what I would say is that the opportunity now is to really figure out how these collaborations kind of go deeper, right? All of us ourselves included have done a lot of kind of surface level work with the with the government education system for the last 10, 20, maybe longer for some people for sure. They've signed MOUs, they've trained faculty members, they've probably brought curriculums into the system. But I think, you know, there is a real question about what kind of last mile impact has that had and what kind of fundamental change has it had. And I think there are probably certain pockets where it clearly has had a big change and those collaborations have brought a lot of increased education outcomes to young people. And we've seen that in certain places. And there's some data to support that as well, but it's certainly not very widespread, right? You know, I think it's not at a national level. It's not even at a state level in a lot of places where these collaborations between civil society and the public education system have really transform things and have really kind of changed the game for the learner and for young people. So I think right now for all of us, I'm speaking to ourselves as much as any other, you know, kind of NGO in the space is really to figure out where do we want to kind of go deeper? Where do we really want to invest our time and energy? it's not necessarily about just going to another state or trying to replicate this in another place because it is hard to resist that scale question all the time or that scale story all the time especially in the indian context when there's crores and crores of young people but i think we all have to kind of ask ourselves that are we ultimately going to impact you know young people's lives or are we just kind of doing something at a high system level and so i think that's where the focus needs to be to be honest on going deeper, figuring out, okay, this worked with this 10 schools, let's really try to make it work with a hundred or a thousand or 5,000 schools, as opposed to saying, let's go to the next state because they want us to come and, you know, we can easily sign an MOU over there. So, yeah, I think that's where our, our focus should be. We've all done to some extent in others a lot more than we have, I think, good work with the government education system and scratch the surface and improve things. Now it's time for us to figure out where we can make more lasting, kind of more significant impact in in that way.
0: Coming off that, Chris, one thing I've been reflecting about myself is that as a sector, we tend to place a lot of emphasis on scale and impact. And sometimes it almost feels like, like you said, that depth of work is kind of lost in our constant attempts to kind of scale our work and take it everywhere. How do you think a right balance between that can be achieved?
1: It's a tough question. I I honestly don't think there probably is a kind of right balance. I I sort of feel like it is um, kind of an individual choice or an organizational choice, right? You know, that you sort of make and sometimes the founders or CEOs, like kind of make that choice other times over the course of time, the organization makes that choice. But I think ultimately, this is a dilemma between scale and impact. You can't necessarily have them both in probably the way that you want them to be. At least personally, I'll speak for our experience. I think it has been trying to kind of walk that line of where do we want to be on this tightrope of sometimes we may feel like we should push for a little bit more scale and see, you know, kind of where this is. And And then there's other years where we feel like we need to kind of pull back and we've gotten a little bit far away from the impact that we've wanted to as a result of trying to kind of scale and let's consolidate things and let's kind of focus on that and honestly i think for us it's probably been sort of a zigzag journey of pushing a little bit of scale coming back to a little bit of you know oh we don't want to lose impact and and kind of going along that way i don't know how it is obviously for other organizations but It ultimately comes down to kind of the ethos and and belief system maybe of that organization and where they sort of want to see themselves on this spectrum or on the, or in this dilemma, where they sort of find that balance. And I'm sure it changes over time, right? You know, the way we thought about it 12 years ago when we were starting is probably different from how we think about it today. And I'm sure that that's probably true for other organizations as well. So yeah, there's no one right answer. I think, you know, some organizations are very clear that we want to scale and we want to impact, you know, millions and millions of young people and, Maybe it's not going to be a very significant impact or very transformational impact, but it's more important to do a little something with 10 million people than it is to do a lot of something with 500 people. Other people feel the opposite. Small is beautiful. And I want to do some really transformational work with 500 people. And I don't care at all about, you know, those big numbers. And and they spend their life's work kind of doing that. I don't think there's a right or wrong. kind. Of, and then there's people in the middle, you know, maybe, maybe we're in the middle, maybe other organizations, you know, sort of find themselves kind of in the middle of that tight rope and kind of trying to find where, where we want to walk it.
0: Thank you, Chris. That's a quite an insightful response to, I think, a dilemma that plagues quite a lot of us that work in the sector. We're going to pivot a little quickly because since I've met you, I've always thought Meda's work was exceptional and so, so important. And I've personally been so, so curious about how you came onto this career path in the workplace.
1: Yeah, it's a long story. We don't have too much time for that, but I'll try to just tell the brief version. So myself and Vyomkesh, the co-founder at Medha, we we work together. In a previous life in the kind of booming microfinance sector of the mid-2000s in Hyderabad. And we enjoyed working with one another. I think that was probably the most important part of that, that we sort of felt this connection of we could maybe do something together, we would like to do something together. That remains today, almost 20 years later, connection was there of someone that we would like to go into business with or go into starting something together. Honestly, I think that's, you know, more important probably than anything else of that. During that time, I think we we had the opportunity to kind of work and sort of mentor a lot of young people, a lot of these loan officers that we were hiring to go into villages and disperse these 10,000 rupee loans. And they were tenth, twelfth past students. And we saw how they were growing. We saw that they were able to save, they were able to invest in their families and we were having as much of a social and economic impact through the wage creation and employment that we were creating, maybe as much as we were the 10,000 rupee loans that we were giving away. So I think that left an impression on us as well. And we also just really liked kind of working and, and engaging with these young people. And we were also hiring a lot of MBA grads as well to bring the organization to the North and other parts of the country. And so we had an opportunity to you know work with both of these kind of early career, and we were also early in our careers. And I think we liked that energy, you know, of, of working with young people that were idealistic and optimistic and starting off in their careers. And that kind of, I think, brought us to this work in some ways. And it was also a very entrepreneurial environment, which I think we liked. So, you know, we felt like maybe we would like to be in that environment. And like I said, you know, do something of our own. This was, you know, around the time where, People were starting to talk a lot more about this whole demographic dividend or demographic disaster. And India has, you know, such this young population, this was 2007, 8, 9, 10, kind of before Skill India came to be or around that time. So I think that was also in our minds, right? That on the one hand, there's some kind of passion here that's bringing us to work with young people, work in an entrepreneurial environment, do something together because we enjoyed that. And then there's a big macro story that India as a country really needs to solve this kind of problem, or at least work on this problem, maybe solve is the wrong word, but at least spend time and energy on how do we harness the capabilities and the power of this young population for good? And how do we better prepare it for the future? I think those two things kind of, you know, came together over the course of many, many years, to be honest, you know, we both kind of went our separate way for three, four years after that microfinance experience and then came back together in 2011. But yeah, that was what sort of drove us to do this, I think.
0: And Chris, last question, as someone that does obviously work with the youth so much and someone that has taken this career path yourself, I don't know if you've noticed this, but quite often what tends to happen is what happened to me also was that once once you finish your education, it's kind of presented like a fork in the road, right? Either you go the commercial, corporate, business way, finance way, or you go the development, social, NGO way. And more often than not, they're presented as these two vastly, vastly different career paths that you can take. What's your insight on that as someone that has worked with people that age making that choice for such a long time?
1: Yeah, I hope that over time, that kind of distinction or that fork is going to become, you know, more and more blurred or less of such a distinct path. And I think it probably is to some extent happening. And I'm I'm sure over the next 10, 20 years, it's going to be much more mixed up and different. And I think we're seeing that with our students today as well. And with our alumni, they probably don't think about it so linearly, you know, they kind of think about where their passions are and what they're interested in. And some of those, yes, may be kind of more aligned on this social side of things. Some of them may be more aligned on kind of the traditional business side of things. But I think more and more we are seeing those overlaps in those areas where students are starting what would definitely be considered social businesses, right? Things that they feel like are kind of net positive and net impact to society, to the economy, but at the same time are maybe going to earn them money, earn them a livelihood, not entirely being grant-based or philanthropically based. So I think that even amongst the students that we work with, many of which are coming from low-income backgrounds and families, that aspiration is there to do something for society. It's not just about kind of earning and and growing in that corporate kind of world or that corporate ladder. So I think that they are finding that mix. And I think more and more, hopefully that overlap will be there and that people will be able to start a quote unquote social business today, volunteer, or maybe spend some time with a nonprofit tomorrow and maybe even sit on a pure kind of corporate board at the same time or be participants in that as well. So. I think it's changing a lot and seeing people that are doing a mix of of many different things. And yeah, those walls will hopefully slowly disintegrate more and more over time.
0: Yeah, I think that's a pretty phenomenal future to look forward to. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And your story has been so insightful and I hope to our audience inspiring as well.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We hope this episode inspired you on your
1: changemaker journey. Together, we are creating a world where
0: everyone can be a changemaker.